been listening to this podcast from the start, you'll know that identity is a huge theme. Where you came from, how you grew up, the people around you, your life experiences, how you handle those experiences, all of those things shape who you are. And something that's come through very strongly as well with everyone's stories is that identity is never static. It morphs many times over the course of a lifetime, but what sets off those shifts can differ from person to person. For my guest today, that question of her cultural and ethnic identity has always been a strong presence in her life. Born and raised in Malaysia, Sam is of Chinese descent, which is something that, as you will hear, has caused a bit of confusion in her life so far and has been a part of those shifts in identity for her. She moved to Australia as an international student, which came with its own learnings and surprises, and she now currently lives in Tokyo, where she works in marketing and strategy, but her true passions lie in writing, food, and travel. Hi, Sam. Thanks for joining me today. (laughs) Hey, Tara. Thanks for having me. It's good to hear your voice. It's been such a long time. It's been so long. It's been almost a year. Can you believe it? Yeah, it's been a while since um, I last saw you for sure. I think we did like your Zoom workout a while back, the popularity class. Yes, when I first started, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but actually, so you and I actually met in Tokyo like a couple of years ago, I think. Can you maybe start by talking about why you ended up in Tokyo, first of all? So I was born and raised in Malaysia, and there's a huge amount of Japanese influence in Malaysia for, for various reasons. And so I've always been interested in, in Japanese culture growing up, but I have family in Sydney, in Australia. And I think the way that I was kind of guided from a young age was, you know, study hard and we'll, we'll send you to Australia if we've got the money for it, for university, you know, you can try and build your life there, that sort of thing. I think that kind of um, aspiration is very Malaysian. Like a lot of people in my generation, if their family, you know, can afford it, they, they send their kids to the UK or, or to Australia to study and, and sometimes they end up staying there. So I had this like trajectory towards Australia, but I think deep down, like that interest in Japanese culture, it always stuck with me. While I was in Australia, I was working in marketing and it got to a point where I just really wanted to try and make my way to Japan, but with my career. And through some luck, some persistence, like I was able to get a transfer at my old job to move to Tokyo. How do you think life living in Tokyo has been like for you so far? Well, it's been like two, two and a bit years now since I've moved. And I definitely feel much more settled than I than I had when I first arrived. Once you start building your community, once you start feeling more comfortable with the environment, like I really, really love living here. But it's so, it's so different to when you're here, you know, as a tourist or, or anything like that. I, I was listening to this other podcast or, or this other YouTube show and, and the, the person I was listening to described it really well. It's like, when you're a tourist, all of the inconveniences of living in Japan are not applicable to you. So, you know, you don't need to register for a SIM card. You don't need, you know, a permanent address. You don't need bank account things. Like anything to do with bureaucracy or paperwork, you're so removed from that as a tourist. So it feels like everything is seamless and, and very like a really good sort of experience. But when you when you live here, you you have to really immerse yourself in ways that can be quite uncomfortable if you're especially if you're not fluent with the language and even if you are then you might still not be used to the pace in which they operate or the formalities that you have to go through with with a lot of this like paperwork stuff you know say opening a bank or getting your mobile phone set up and things like that and 
yeah, so there's like the language barrier, there's um, sort of like the way they do things. Even if, even if you put all of that aside, there are some things that don't make sense to your like logical brain. Like, I don't know how to describe it, but like things just work differently here sometimes and it might seem illogical to you, but it's just a different way of, of things being done. I think we kind of touched on this when we were kind of communicating before leading up to this call, but I think we both felt this pressure to be able to speak Japanese really well, to know all the etiquette and tiny little cultural nuances, even though we're not Japanese. I remember there was a time where this this old Japanese lady was, we were both at the train stop and she was trying to talk to me she was asking me for directions and I I tried to help her but you know as soon as I opened my mouth she kind of started laughing because it was very clear that I wasn't a native speaker and I'm not sure if she took any of my directions seriously from then on and maybe it was funny to her maybe she didn't really think much of it but I don't know why like I felt kind of embarrassed or like I felt like I let her down even though it's completely ridiculous um, for me to think that because why would I know Japanese to a native level if I'm not Japanese or, you know, why do I feel that way? It's, it's like I'm internalizing it as well. Like I'm putting the pressure on myself to think I should be able to speak really good Japanese or just, just because I look like it or I've lived here for two years. Like why am I not native yet or, or any other kind of ridiculous like high expectations I place, place on myself. And I think um, having that appearance as well, like looking Asian or looking Japanese does play a role. Like if I look different, if I look Western, if I look or if I have blonde hair, and I spoke a bit of Japanese, everyone would, you know, they would start clapping and start with the, you know, the Nihongo Joji desune. Whereas when they look at me and they think I'm Japanese and the opposite comes out, it's like, oh, this girl doesn't seem very smart or something like that. I don't know. What do you think of the whole concept of the gaijin card? So maybe if we explain first what gaijin means and what the gaijin card is. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I guess the word gaijin comes from, it's, it's a shortened version of gaikokujin. And depending on who says it or the context, gaijin can have a negative connotation because gai has the kanji for outside and jin is person. So gaijin is just, you know, like outsider. And I guess the gaijin card is, I, I suppose, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know, like. So for example, I think of it like, Japanese people excusing foreigners for not knowing local customs or ways of behaving. If it's like a foreigner who fits the ideas of what Japanese people think foreigners are, then they'd kind of just attribute that to their foreignness and just sort of being uh, unaware. So it's a level of privilege that a lot of white foreigners have. I'd argue that it's exclusively a white gaijin card because if, say, a brown foreigner did a similar thing, I don't know if Japanese people would find it as endearing. Totally. And then I guess like if it was you and you and I, for example, being Asian looking, but we are foreigners, I think if we behaved in a certain, in, in a way that was trying to use the gaijin path, I don't know if that would fly as well either. Yeah, I don't know. I think <laughs> a lot of it, does kind of stem from very deep-rooted xenophobia and also racism towards other Asians. Obviously, not all Japanese people, but the systemic racism is still there. 
Yeah, yeah. But what do you think are some of the good things about being an Asian foreigner in Japan? I guess the whole idea of looking kind of Japanese can be an advantage if you just want to lay low and kind of go about doing your own thing. You're not you're not as noticed. Whereas I know some of my friends who are who are Western, they walk around, they get stared at a lot. You know, I suppose if you were in a social setting, like at a bar, maybe some, you know, more drunk Japanese who might try and talk to you in English or, or try to like have a bit of fun that way. But I guess if you if you kind of blend in, then you you're you don't have to be in the spotlight all the time. Yeah, it's good if you just want to stay invisible, right? Which for me, I quite enjoyed. As long as I didn't open my mouth, then I basically went through Japanese society and life in Japan essentially unnoticed. Do you feel like Tokyo is going to be your forever home? I can't really think of anywhere else in the world I want to be in. Japan is close to Malaysia and Malaysia is where my family is located. So I do feel closer to them. They love Japan. They love coming here to visit, um, you know, my mom and, and my grandma and that sort of thing. It feels like a good place for me to build my career, build my own sort of life here, um, but still being close to family. Let's talk a bit about your family. So you are how many generation Chinese Malaysian? I'm fairly sure my great grandmother was born in Malaysia, but then my great great grandmother, I think she might have come from China. So my grandmother was definitely born in Malaysia, so was my mom, and so am I. Do you know where in China your family originated from? I actually don't know. I guess we can you can kind of determine or ascertain where based on the dialect we speak. So on my dad's side, um, my grandmother is Hakka and my grandfather is Hokkien, I believe. And then on my mom's side, I think we are Hokkien. Okay, so sort of coastal southern-ish China. You might know better than me, actually. Yeah, because I think it's near from where my dad's from as well. And I think also just knowing the very, very little that I know about Chinese migration to Malaysia, I think a lot of the immigrants did come from the southern parts of China. Since there's been so many generations of your family in Malaysia, do you still retain a strong connection to Chinese culture? In terms of Chinese culture, yes. And I think in some ways, I mean, this is just anecdotally speaking, but in some ways I feel like we probably hold on to the culture more because we're away from our heritage. So Chinese New Year is, is huge in Malaysia. We we follow a lot of tradition from China, but we've also developed some of our own. So during Chinese New Year, we do a lot of the usual traditional stuff, like you know, going back to your hometown, you know, spending time with your family. If you're single, you you know you receive red packets. If you're married, you, you give them out like the ang pao. But there's a thing we do in Malaysia called uh, the yisang, which I don't think they do in China or outside of Malaysia and Singapore. It's like um kind of like a tossing salad that we have. It's a mixture of vegetables. Um, sometimes it's like raw fish or or jellyfish in it, and it's like a peanuts and like a plum sauce that goes over it and then you toss it with your chopsticks like everyone tosses it on like a big plate and as you're tossing you say good things like um you know health prosperity um typically in chinese fashion you go like oh lots of money um, <laughs> yeah of course yeah yeah money health um, yeah and i think that's not a mainland chinese tradition i think that's something in malaysia and singapore yeah i've never heard of that and what's the significance of tossing the salad 
I'm not exactly sure what the significance is. I just know that like it's like a very communal dish, you know, like everyone kind of gets in gets in together and that's you know always very nice. And while tossing you're you're saying those things and it's kind of like reinforcing like the wishes for the new year. I don't know exactly for each ingredient, but I know it's all symbolic. Like um having the raw fish is supposed to symbolize like long long life, for example. I know each ingredient has some kind of meaning to it. I just don't know what the meanings are. So does your family speak Mandarin or what languages do they speak? So my mom's side, they speak Cantonese and Hokkien. And my dad's side, they speak Hokkien, uh, Cantonese and Hakka. But the Cantonese bit, I, I don't think we have any connection to Cantonese lineage. I think it's because they just watch a lot of um, Hong Kong television dramas. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Does that mean that in a few years I'll be fluent in Korean because of my love of K-drama? It might be. It might be. And then you pass it on to your kids and and their kids. (laughs) What was the common language at home then? I mostly spoke to my mom in English. Okay, right. Yeah. And you also mentioned that you went to a Malaysian school as opposed to, I'm guessing, a Chinese school? Yeah. So the Malaysian public school system you have options on on kind of what stream you want to go to. So there's like Malay schools that you go to where the main language that's taught um, is Malay. So you'll learn maths in Malay, science in Malay, that sort of thing. You've also got Chinese schools and it's different to, I know like in New Zealand and in Australia, you might have Chinese school, but that's like a weekend sort of vocational thing. But in Malaysia, you can actually study at a public Chinese school where the main language um, that's taught to you is in Chinese. There are Tamil schools as well where they teach mostly in Tamil. We've talked before about this, but very few members of your family speak Mandarin. But there's this expectation put on you to speak Mandarin. There's quite a bit to unpack here, I guess. When I moved to Australia and I met Australians, you know, they would just say, I'm Australian, regardless of whether they've got Greek heritage, Italian heritage or or anything like that. But in Malaysia, if you met a Chinese person, they would tell you that they're Chinese or maybe they'll say Malaysian Chinese, but most likely they'll say Chinese. In formal documentation as well, you've got a space for your name, your date of birth, your address and also your race, which I never realized how weird it was until I left Malaysia. So there's like this constant sort of like, I don't know if it's like a reminder or some kind of emphasis on the fact that, you know, you're Chinese and having such a strong Chinese identity can work both ways. And one, one of those ways it manifests is a lot of Chinese people still want to retain to their Chinese identity and they want to make sure that, you know, the language is not lost and the culture is not lost. But in my family, I found it really difficult and really confusing because there were definitely some family members I had which would make fun of me for not being fluent in Cantonese or Hokkien or they would be like, why don't you know Mandarin? And, it, you know, at the time I just felt bad as a kid, but now I'm just thinking like how stupid to... Like, where was I going to learn that? Like, who was going to speak to me in Mandarin if no one in my family, like in my immediate family spoke Mandarin? Where do you think that came from? So I think it comes from society to start with, where everyone is sort of being reminded of their category. Like, Like I was saying, formal documentation with these different like streams at school and that sort of thing. It's like, you're Chinese, so you should do this or you should be this, even though we're all Malaysian and, you know, a lot of us have only ever known Malaysia as our home, you know, being multi-generational here. Individually as well, when you're, when you identify as Chinese and maybe you think, well, I should be doing all these things that make me Chinese. I don't know if I told you this story, but I had to do an interview for my student exchange to go to, to go to Japan. And I did the interview 
in Japanese, or at least I tried to like, I remember I tried to memorize this paragraph in Japanese to try and impress them that I, so I could go to Japan. And I introduced myself as Chinese and the, the guy was so confused. And I did it again in Japan. And I, like, you know, I'm like standing there being like, oh, my name is Samantha. Um, I'm Chinese. And then all of them, it looked like they had like this question mark hanging over their head being like, did we pick her up from Malaysia? <laughs> <laughs> But then that just kind of goes to show how little they'd know about Chinese diaspora, right? For me, that wouldn't be weird because I know there are a lot of Chinese people in Malaysia. Definitely. But also, like, it was weird that I did that. I don't know. So how do you identify now? Personally, I see myself as Malaysian. It took me a while to get there. Like like I said, like before, in high school, I was introducing myself as Chinese to Japanese people. But since I've gotten older, I really do feel like I'm Malaysian. And the more time I spend overseas, as much as I love Japan, as much as I love Australia, like it's really solidified to me that I'm Malaysian. But when I introduce myself to people, like I want to communicate effectively or I want them to understand where I'm from or, or who I am. So I generally say Malaysian Chinese. Yeah, I'm really curious as well about your family's really strong connection with their Chinese background, but also putting you in a Malaysian school? I think my mom was like the key decision maker with my education. And she considered Chinese school, but the Chinese school in Malaysia is also um, notoriously very difficult. They would study um, the usual school hours, and then most schools would also have like afternoon sessions. So the workload was very full on. And also my mom really wanted me to be good at English. And in Chinese schools, most of them, because the emphasis is so strong on Chinese, and they also have to teach Malay because um, they teach Malay, but not to like the same level of Malay school. It's just like part of the, it's like it's mandatory for everyone to try and learn Malay. But because of that, there's so many languages and English often doesn't get taught as well or as effectively in Chinese school. So my mom wanted me to have a Malay school education, which she felt was more balanced and offered me more space to improve my English. Mm, Interesting. What then does it mean for you to be Malaysian? I think um, what it means to be Malaysian isn't so much like, you know, what your heritage is or where your parents are from or what you look like. I think it's just more about the values that we hold, you know, as people from Malaysia. Off the top of my head, like two values, I think, are very prominent. And one of it is just being very open and accepting. You know, for better or worse, we are very multicultural. People of different backgrounds have really lived together for a long time. And I think like having that value of like tolerance and inclusivity, that's something that is really embedded in being Malaysian. The other thing I think that is pretty much what it means to be Malaysian is just like this undying love for food. Like (laughs) it's especially Malaysian food. It is like the hill that every Malaysian will die on. Like, oh, Malaysian food is the best. There is no question about it. And it's it's funny. Okay, what are your top three Malaysian dishes? Um, okay, so top three. One of it, um, so my grandma makes this dish called Jihu Cha, which is I guess it's like a, originally a Chinese dish. It's made from um the hikama root. So I don't know if you know what that is. It's like a it looks like a big turnip. So she grates that, grates carrot, um, there's like some dried squid that goes in there, some mushrooms. It's all kind of like tossed together and cooked almost. I don't want to say it's a stir fry because it's, it's just like a big bowl of, I guess, lots of vegetables. You put in like lettuce, kind of like a sang choy bao, but it's not a sang choy bao. So that's like one of my all-time favorite dishes. And she hand cuts 
her um, the hikamaru the the turnip looking thing because she's like if you shred it it loses too much water or something like that um she says so there's so much like love and attention she puts into it it's definitely one of my favorite dishes the other one that i love is dose or dosa i think some people might call it so it's made from um rice flour or lentils i think it's different to roti obviously it originates from india but we have such a big indian community in malaysia that you know dose is part of Malaysia, like you get it at a Malaysian stall. It's it's available everywhere, and we've got like our own curries that we eat with it as well. And then number three, I guess it's very basic, but like satay, like I just think like the the satay we make, which is you know like chicken skewers or beef skewers, like it's kind of like meat on the skewer. I really love it. It's so different to like yakitori, for example, in Japan, which is also grilled, also grilled chicken, but yeah, just the way we cook it. Do you think that connection with food in Malaysia is also why you love food so much? Because you're a bit of a foodie, right? <laughs> I mean, like, again, it's like really controversial to say, but I feel like Malaysians were foodies before foodies were a thing. Before there were blogs or Instagram or whatever, like my family, you know, when we get together, all we talk about is food. And it's like, oh, you know that um, the best chicken rice is from this shop behind my house. And then some uncle will go, oh, you're ki- you have to be kidding. Like, this one is so much better. Um, no one knows about it. Oh, that 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 uncle from, from that street has now moved to the other street. And that's where you get your chicken rice now. You know, like, it was all word of mouth. And it's all about, like, going there and visiting and, and getting to know these small business owners. Mm. Is there anything that you want to add about this part of your life yeah I think it's I think it's actually it's quite complex I've never really sort of looked back at um, my upbringing and and all of this until the last few years and it's also only stuff that like I realized after leaving Malaysia going to Australia growing up there and seeing the difference is what made me both like appreciate more what I had growing up but also like questioning as well like why things are done a certain way why is race such a important part of discussion in Malaysia for example I guess like opening up questions to like why you were raised in a certain way because back then like that's all you know like you grew up in a certain space and you were raised in this way but you would never question it because it's all you know it's only when you leave and you meet other people and or you experience a different culture that you can look back at your own and either appreciate it or, or kind of like question certain things so you left Malaysia when you were how old? When I was 17. So I went to Sydney, Australia when I was 17 for year 11 and year 12. So the last two years of high school. What was behind the decision around that? My parents wanted me to go to university in Australia. They thought, you know, if they sent me a couple of years before that, I could have some time to assimilate, get used to living in Australia, I guess. I went to a private boarding school in Sydney. There was so much privilege behind it. I'm very grateful to for the opportunities that my parents gave me for that. But at the time, it was really hard. You know, you come in when you're 17 and everyone's already formed sort of like their own friendship groups. And I was living in boarding school. I'd never lived out of home before that. I was in a co-ed school in Malaysia, like all the way through. And this was my first time attending an all-girls school. And on top of that, it was like, Okay, you've got two years. You've got one year to get used to things, and then the next year you're doing your your final exams. You're going to determine whether you get into university or not. So it's like, oh, no pressure. No pressure <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did you find Australian schools and Australian like teenagers and society? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> um, 
I think the boarding school I went to, there were probably like less than 10 Asians in my year. Despite it being like, you know, a school that was like in the metro, like the metro part of Sydney, we're not, you know, we're not in the outskirts, we're not in the rural parts of Australia. They just didn't have a very strong understanding or awareness of of Asian culture. Even if you just wanted to look at it as like a monolith of like we're all Asian. I don't think they had like a strong understanding of that. Amongst the the borders, a lot of them were from rural parts of Australia. And I don't think they knew, uh, I think their understanding of Asian culture was even less. And I don't think they cared, to be honest. For example, like we would have to do school plays. And if you were Asian, like if you wanted a role, you would get typecasted to being like an Asian nerd. Or you just wouldn't get shown at all. So my friend who I was talking to, she was typecast as an Asian nerd. I was a shadow. What? And I was a shadow. Yes. And my other best friend who was also Malaysian, she was a tree. <laughs> we were so we were all okay, like I'll wow. give I'll give more context to that. So all three of us, we were in year twelve and at my school, if you're year 12, you, you're meant to all get like a speaking role. It was kind of like your thing that you could get to do before you before you leave school. So you're doing a performance in your houses with your, from year 7 to year 12. But year, the year 12 has always got a speaking role. And the three of us were, yeah, one Asian nerd, one tree, one shadow. I'm really confused what kind of play this is. <laughs> <laughs> so you went to Australia technically as an international student then? Yeah, I was there as an international student. So what kind of challenges did you face? It was a really weird position to be in because the Australian stereotype of an international student is also like you're Chinese, as in you're from mainland China, you don't speak very good English, or um, you're wealthy and you've just bought your way into university and that sort of thing. And I was I was none of those things. You know, I speak English. English is my first language. I did pay international student fees. I wasn't just like a transplant, like I'd already spent like a couple of years here in Australia. So then like when I was trying to, you know, make new friends at university and when they find out I'm an international student, they're they're surprised and they say like, oh, you don't look or you don't seem like an international student as if it was a negative thing. How did that make you feel? Initially, it just felt really weird. It just felt like, yeah, it definitely felt like some kind of backhanded compliment. I remember in my fourth year of university, I was part of this sort of like incubator like kind of like startup-y thing that our university had created and it was specifically for international students when I joined like I met lots of other international students like yeah there were lots of people from Asia but there were also people from from South Africa there were also people from um, South America you know people that aren't that would pass off western so Australians don't think that they're international and in any case like I spoke to a lot of them and there was this one girl I remember she told me she lived like really far away from the city but she would commute into uni super early in the morning because the train ticket was like 20% cheaper if you had gone like off peak and I was just thinking like my Australian friends who have this like negative perception of international students as being like rich Asians from China like then then there's this girl here who's coming in so early because that 20% discount makes such a big difference for her. Did you feel the pressure then to fit in to Australian society but also with the people around you? Yeah I think I wouldn't openly like volunteer the information that I'm international if it wasn't relevant because I especially if it was like a new class I was attending and people and we had to do group activities or something like that. It felt like I shouldn't say I'm international. It seemed like it would 
be better if I tried to pass off as normal, so to speak. <laughs> Mainstream. <laughs> Did you know that that was the perception of international students in Australia before you got there? No, I had no idea. How did you, no idea. Do you remember how you found out? I think I found out when, so I went to, I went to law school in Sydney in the first one or two weeks, there was a guy who, like I became friends with, we were both, you know, new to the faculty and stuff. And he went on this big rant about how he got 98 point whatever and couldn't get into the top university in um, in Sydney at the time and was in our university. But at the same time, like our international students get an extra however many points. And he was like, I can't believe they get that. It's totally unfair. He just went on, on this rant about just like how undeserving it was and that they were just paying their way in. And here he was like unable to go to the top university and everything. And I'm just sitting there like getting smaller and smaller being like, oh, should I, should I tell him? <laughs> By the way, <laughs> that's so <laughs> awkward. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember how that realization made you feel then? You know, I didn't, it didn't feel great. That's for sure. And I, I did tell him in the end that I was international and I said like, yeah, it's it, we do get like extra points to get in or, or anything like that. But do you know what it's like to uproot your life and move to this foreign country? Like, do you know what I went through? Like I had to become really good at your school system in under two years to get into university. How would you have handled that? Like how would that ma have made you feel? Mm. So you went to law school. Mm-hmm. You went to law school, Tao? Yes, I did also go to law school. And I think this was the first thing where we really had a common shared experience, right? When we first met, because we were talking about how we both went to law school and then didn't go into law. Was your choice in going to law school something that you made for yourself or something that you made for your family and because that they had sacrificed so much to send you to Australia? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what I wanted to study. My parents were pushing me towards the, the doctor path. Like they were trying so hard with that. And I did like my sciences, but I was never all that passionate about becoming a doctor. And I feel like it's one of those things that you really need to be passionate about just to get you through those those long years um, and even just to get in. And then I was able to get into law and it felt like something my parents would also like. I honestly just had no idea what I wanted. And the next thing was like, oh, maybe I could make my parents happy by choosing this. So I went with law and and business actually I did a combined degree mm. at what point were you like how no am I going into law in my first year I realized I didn't like business and in my second year I realized I didn't like law and you stuck it out because I stuck it out for many reasons one you know great combination to have two my parents had already invested in me I didn't feel like it was fair to cost them more money if I had to extend my degree by transferring or changing. And third, I'm just really stubborn. And I just felt like I've already started this thing. I'm, no matter how painful it, it, the next few years is going to be, like I'm going to finish it. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. <laughs> because everyone, <laughs> when I tell them that I went through law school and I got admitted to the bar, but then didn't end up practicing law, and they're just so shocked. And... There are many reasons why I decided to finish it. And there are also reasons why I chose not to pursue it as a career. 
I don't know. I just feel like sometimes maybe people underestimate how difficult law school is. So for me, law school is like the hardest thing I've ever done. One of the hardest things I've ever done. But law school and then already knowing you're not going to be a lawyer when you get out of it, to maintain the motivation and the interest to keep going on something that is so difficult and something that you know you're actually not going to pursue at the end of it is like many times makes it many times more difficult I felt. exactly because you don't have a thing to work towards beyond finishing law school yeah did you know what you wanted to do having decided that you didn't want to be a lawyer I didn't know but I knew like I knew I, I wanted to I, I told myself I had to figure it out by the time I graduated so in my second year when I realized like none of these um, degrees were things I was interested in I started just doing like tons of internships, doing lots of part-time work and being like, by the time I graduate, I would have figured it out because I would have tried like a bunch of different things. And I knew that my grades were going to suffer because I was, you know, packing my schedule with so much work and so many extracurriculars. But that was kind of like where I was willing to compromise, I suppose. After law school, I started working at a public relations agency. I'd done like an internship at a different agency before and I worked there part-time and I basically went to work at a different one, but it was very similar in a very similar field. Mm. What did your parents say when you told them that you weren't going to pursue law? They were not very happy, but I, you, but you know, you like, you keep, you just keep reminding them. Like it was just through repetition that by the time I actually came out and didn't become a lawyer, I think they, they'd already like gotten used to it because exactly. I told them for over three years. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Did they ever try to convince you to practice? I think they tried. Like they, they thought like, oh, why don't you try and apply for an internship at this law firm instead of whatever you're planning on doing in summer and, and things like that. But it's, you know, when you're, I mean, what, how old was I then? Like 20, 21, 22. Like when you're at that age, like my parents just kind of had to resign to the fact that they they don't have as much control over my life as, as they did before when I was younger. So you went into PR after uni and then you eventually ended up working in marketing? Yep. So I, I worked in PR, but it was B2B tech oriented. So most of my clients were tech companies that, you know, had data centers or made microchips, you know, just like really, really niche tech stuff. But I was doing some freelance writing on the side and some of my work uh, landed me doing like tourism opportunities. So I was like traveling a little bit, yeah, in regional um, New South Wales. And then the hotel that I started working at in a marketing capacity, when they contacted me, they contacted me because they read something I'd written and then they saw that I was also in PR. So then they asked like, oh, would you like to do PR for a hotel? Because it sounds like you like both travel and PR. Oh, great. That's how I started. Yeah. And that's what led you to go to Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your journey has been nonlinear. But when you think about it, you've spent quite a lot of time in different places, different cultures and experiencing different ways of life. And having those experiences, I feel, makes you such a more well-rounded person? Yeah, I think it goes back to like what I was saying before as well. Like you don't realize the benefits and the shortcomings of, of how you were raised until you leave that space. And then you've tried something different and you can actually look back and see being in Malaysia was so great for this reason, but there are some issues with society in Malaysia as well. 
and you don't realize that until you leave that society and look back at it. So I think that's the benefit of of travel, of of moving overseas, of you know meeting people that come from different backgrounds. Mm, it's that perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, thank you so much for sharing about your background and your journey. Is there anything else that you wanted to add about your identity or your heritage or anything? Thanks so much, Tao. My story, I think, is not unique. Like everyone has a similar kind of progression that's not how people imagine. So I hope like by sharing this, they'll see like there are so many facets to, to being Asian, to being female Asian, to living in Asia, all that sort of stuff. I love it. And that's the whole purpose of why this podcast exists, to bring a bit of depth. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for listening to Not Your Token Minority. If you or someone you know are interested in sharing your story with me or just having a good old chat, then visit notyourtokenminority.com and fill in the form at the bottom. I really appreciate your support, so don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and follow on social media. Just search for Not Your Token Minority Podcast on Facebook and Instagram.